Praise the Lord. Scripture reading, uh, 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 16. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus saith the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom should be made sure forever before me. Your throne should be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Praise the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you, Henry. And as you're getting settled in, I did, I did want to recognize you're, you're all my favorites. You know that, right? You're all my favorites. But I have, one, I have one extra special favorite today. My grandmother's visiting today from Kentucky, which is pretty amazing. Uh, Amazing privilege for me to, uh, to have you here, Grand, so welcome. You, you can call her Miss Betty, but she's Grand. So. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance uh, to be before your word, and uh, we thank you, God, that you have made some pretty amazing promises uh, to your people. And we stand in awe uh, of your faithfulness, your loyalty, your love for your people. God, we pray uh, that as we consider now these promises you've made, uh, that we would stand firm on them, uh, that you would assure our hearts of their truth and of your goodness, and that you would stir us by your grace uh, to worship you more. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You've probably noticed that uh, time, the little ticking hand on the clock, is a pretty crazy thing, is it not? There are some moments where we feel like there is just not enough time in the day to do all the things that we need to do. We don't have enough of it. 
There are other times we are stuck doing something that we really don't like to do, and time seems to stand still. Isn't that weird? Time is exactly the same always. You know, there's always a, sec- a minute's always 60 seconds, and an hour is always 60 minutes. And yet the, the speed of that time can feel so different. And we can have such dealing, different feelings toward that time depending on the circumstances. There are times we want things to slow down. It just seems, life just seems to be going so fast that we can't catch up and it's going too fast. There are other times where we really want something to, to hurry up. We're waiting on something. We're anticipating something. And we wish we could, we could speed time up just a little bit. We, it's amazing to see how fast things really change. And that's probably uh, more true with technology now and the way things change. But, but just generation to generation, how much something can change in just 20, and, 20 to 30 years or so. You know, uh, the, the funny things are like when you go back and look at family pictures from 20, 30 years ago. So we recently were looking at um, Amber's family pictures from, the, from when she was about the age of, of our daughter Lois, who's eight. So that would have been the 90s. And the 90s were a funny time, weren't they? Do you, do you, this, this was not that long ago, right? Windsuits, do you, 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 you rock some windsuits? The big hair, you know, like roll over, rolling over from the 80s. Uh, the, the like, we, we call it the, the Olin Mills, like the formal portraits, you know, we did. And the, the clothes, like my parents are here, I can't speak too bad, but the clothes they put us in, in the 90s, which just means, you know what's going to happen 30 years from now, is my kids are going to be like, I cannot believe that's the kind of pictures we took. And they seem so normal now. I'm sure it seemed normal then in the 90s. 30 years from now, like, like those pictures, you, you pull it up and it might as well be screaming at you, hello, I'm 1992, right? Like you can, you can date it just by what's in the picture. Time just goes so fast. Things change. Things are rapid. And sometimes it's funny. <laughs> and sometimes it's not. Sometimes things change in a way that is, makes us anxious, makes us stressed, makes us worried. We, we, we watch the world, we watch the news, and we're, we have this like shaking feeling of there's, there's nothing seems to be stable because I, I, I may be able to pull the battery out of the clock on my wall. I'm able to run the battery down on my watch or, or, or something, but I can't stop time. We can't actually make it stand still, and that can make us so, so anxious, so nervous. We can be so uneasy about the, the rapidly changing world that we live in. But I, I think that there's, there's something God's doing with that. As we watch the world change, as we watch our kids grow up, as we grow up, as we get older, as we get more aches and pains and time touches everything, we long for something that lasts. We long for something that's permanent. We long for something that stands the test of time. If we grow comfortable within our own time, then, then we may fail to reach out to something that is beyond our own time. Sometimes the changes are so fast that we, we, we recognize our need for permanence, our need for something that lasts. The more we walk through the shifting sands of our culture, the more we look for a solid rock beneath our feet. Amen? We need a solid rock. We need something permanent. We need something eternal. And that's what God promises to us in 2 Samuel seven today. A lot has changed in one generation that we have been following through first and second Samuel. Maybe, maybe if you go back all the way to Samuel's birth, maybe it's been two or three generations, but in just the couple generations from where we started in first Samuel chapter one to now in second Samuel chapter seven, time has shaken up a lot of things. 
the, 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 the Israelites went from being a nation ruled by judges to now on their second king in King David after Saul's failures as the first king. And so things have, have begun to finally calm down after all David's ups and downs and all the wandering and all the exile and all the stress. So for, for hundreds of years, God's presence had been with David and his people in a very specific way. And that had been kind of unchanging while changing at the same time because his presence was in a, a tent, a movable tabernacle. And so now that things are at rest, David has become king. There's, there's peace in the land. And, and the people, and the, from, from support from other nations, they have now built, David has built a house of cedar. And that compared to where they used to live and the tents and everything, it has a sense of a solid piece of rock beneath his feet, you know? A house that he, could, he was going to be there. And he's looking around and he says, I'm in this tent. I mean, I'm in this, in this house and God is still in this tent. We read that in the beginning of our passage, 2 Samuel 7, 1 and 2. It says, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. David says, I've got this sense of permanence. I've got this sense of place. I've got this sense of, of things are, are restful and good. And so now I need to take God who's still camping. He's still in a tent and I need to give him what I've got. I need to give him a sense of permanence. I need to help God. I'm going to help God be permanent, to be stable. You know, David was trying to make something permanent for God. (laughs) And that seemed like a good idea. It was. David, David didn't have bad intentions. And ultimately, David, I mean, God would get a temple through David's son, Solomon. And Nathan originally likes the idea. Verse 3, he says, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And yet, God had a different idea. God had a different idea. That night, God spoke to this prophet, Nathan. And that's a name you'll want to remember. That prophet comes back. Some important moments in the rest of David's life. So we'll come back to him in the weeks ahead. God told Nathan that God had a different viewpoint from this tent versus house question. God, God didn't see it the same way David did. David thought, hey, I'm in a permanent house. God's in a tent. Let's, let's make things equal here. Let's, let's honor God. So he tells Nathan, God tells Nathan to tell David that God has been choosing to move around with his people in a tent since the time they left Egypt. And he has been totally content with that plan. Verse 7, in all the places where I have moved, this is God speaking, in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I have commanded to shepherd my people in Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God says, I've never complained. I've never instructed this to be any different. He says in verse 7, this is, this is, um, we're, we're supposed to hear, the, the beginning of that verse, we're supposed to hear this distinctive, this is God, right, speaking. He says, I have moved with all the people. He's saying, this is the point of the tent. This is why I've been in a tent. I've been in this movable thing because you've been movable, and I wanted you to know I am with you. God says, I'm not complaining about my tent. My tent is a symbolic way of showing you I am with you. As you move, I have moved with you. In verse 9, he even reiterates that specifically he has lived that out. He's shown that to David. He says, I have been with you, specifically David, talking to David, wherever you went. So that tent has been symbolic of God's presence. God's not complaining. He's doing just fine in with his tent. Now, just to be clear, God does not live in a tent. It's symbolic. You know that, right? But that's what he was using. He is with his people, whatever he went. And that's incredibly 
gracious of God, considering who He is and who we are as people. God is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. The fact that God even speaks to us is incredible. The fact that He would give a symbolic representation of His presence in the middle of His people, that is grace upon grace. And the fact that it is movable, that He is willing to go and be with His people wherever they go, it's grace upon grace upon grace. God is like a kindergarten teacher who is wise and educated and smart and yet sits down on the rug and invites all the kids, hey, come, come to me. And she has selected not the Encyclopedia Britannica to read about, you know, whatever, some kind of nerdy thing. He, they pick out a book that the kids would understand and she speaks in a language they can understand. She, the kindergarten teacher wants to come to the level of the kids, not demeaning the kids, but a way of speaking down on their level. God is like that. I read a story from a commentary about Dale Davis, and I probably have not mentioned that name enough. It's an incredible set of commentaries in First and Second Samuel, the ones I would highly recommend. Uh, but he gives an illustration from Sam Rayburn, who was a three-time speaker of the House of the Representatives in the U.S. Congress starting in the 1940s. His last term ended in 1961. And uh, Paul Bowler wrote a, a book of anecdotes about, about Congress and captured this story from, from Representative um, Rayburn's life where he learned that uh, one of the, the reporters that he knew that was covering things on Capitol Hill, one of the reporters had a teenage daughter who died suddenly. And the, the Speaker of the House, Representative Rayburn, goes to this, this reporter's apartment the, the very next morning, the day that he heard that it happened. And he knocks on the door and the reporter's kind of caught off guard. I mean, he knows who he is. This is the Speaker of the House. And yet he's standing at, at his door. And he's, you know, just encouraging him, saying, hey, man, can we do anything for you? We love you. I'm so sorry this happened. And like we all do in those moments, he says, you know, no, I, we don't need anything. Thank you for offering, but we're just, you know, making arrangements. And, uh, and the representative Rayburn insists. He says, well, have you made your coffee yet this morning? He said, well, well no. He said, okay, well, I'm coming in. I'm going to make your coffee. And so the reporter's kind of stunned. And the, the speaker of the house is making coffee in his kitchen. And the reporter, as that's happening, the reporter's thinking through. He knows, he follows this guy. He knows this guy's schedule, and he says, Mr. Speaker, don't, don't you have an appointment right now? And he said, yeah. He's like, isn't your appointment at the White House? And he said, yeah, I was supposed to have my weekly breakfast with the president, but I called him. He says, um, he said uh, I was supposed to have, have breakfast there, but I called the president, and I told him I had a friend who was in trouble, and I couldn't come. <laughs> the president of the United States, I'm sorry, sir, you got to wait. i got to go see my friend. God takes steps far, infinitely greater to be with his people, to be in a tent, to dwell with them. And he doesn't need anybody to improve on his tent. <laughs> He's doing just fine. He, he wants to show us that he is with us. He is here with us. He is dwelling with his people. He has shown grace upon grace to make sure that the people of God know God is with us. Notice another objection God has to David's plan. And it's not a bad plan, again, it's, but not bad intentions. But God wants to clarify something's going on. Verse 5, God said to David, Would you build me a house? Would you build me a house? And, and I love this because we do this all the time. We come to God. and God's not mad at David. He's got good intentions. We come to God and we say, What can I do for you, God? How can I serve you? That's actually our better days. Our, our bad days, we're saying, I, I, what's, who's going to serve me today? Our better days, we say, how can I serve you, God? We, we think that the God needs us. And we want to do something for God. 
That's David's thought here. How can I serve God? How can I do something for him? I want to make him a house, make him a temple. And God says, hold up, hold up. You want to serve me? He starts by reminding us who's doing the serving. And it's different than we may think. Verse 8, he says, he goes back to the past and says, remember who you were and where you were. You were, you were out following the sheep. And I have brought you and I have led you to being prince over the land. You are now king because I'm the one that put you here. In verse 11, he says this, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. He'll make you a house. Now, if you read that, you're like, wait, didn't David already have a house? He said he's got a house of cedar. Why is God going to make him another house? He's not talking here about a physical house. It's a great play on words. He's, God, um, David wants to build God a house, a temple. God says, what I'm going to make for you is a dynasty, a household, a kingship that will last. He's talking about a legacy of kings that would come from David's line. David wanted to bless God, and God makes it clear he's the one who does the blessing. We do the receiving. Our first posture when it comes to God is not giving, as if we had something within us that God needs. Our first posture when we come to God is receiving. It's recognizing we have a need. And God is the one who can fill it. We so often, there, there is a place of, uh, it, it can be from a good place. It can be from a good intentions. Our, our bad days, we want people to serve us. Our better days, we think we have something to give to God and to give to others. And we might. But our best days, we recognize we need God to serve us first. We have a need that needs to be met. We need God to pour into our lives before we have anything to offer God or anybody else. This is the picture of the gospel. This is a picture of good news. The gospel is not good advice or good commandments or good ideas that you should consider. It's news. It is history. It is what has been done for you. It is finished. The good news is that Christ died for your sins. The good news is not you better work hard so that your sins are paid for. God doesn't need you to pay for your sins. God wants you to receive that He has paid for your sins. Our justification comes not by works, but by faith, by receiving, by believing that God has already built a house. We're invited to it. We are not saved by building God something. So God makes it clear to David, yes, you've got lots of good things, and he's not bashing his intentions, but he's saying, I want to make it clear to you and to everybody that's going to come from you that the ultimate giver of good gifts is not the king who sits on an earthly throne, but the king who sits above all thrones, God himself. And he is building a house. He is building a dynasty. He is establishing a kingship. Verse 13, he tells him, One of your descendants will build me a house, a temple, yes. And there will be a time for that after you've received this blessing. But then we read this in verse 13. He says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Do you hear that? Forever. Ever. David was trying to do something permanent for God. David had sensed the kind of uneasiness of their nation that for hundreds of years now, as Moses had led them out of Egypt, Joshua had led them into the promised land. The judges had failed to finish Joshua's task of fully establishing the reign in the promised land in Palestine. Finally, the people of God have some, some steady, uh, that things have kind of worked out, that, that, that there's peace. And so David wants to, to kind of Capitalize on that steady moment 
and make a permanent structure for God. Get God out of the, the tent and into the temple. He wants to do something permanent for God. And God says, oh, I got something way better, way better for you. I want to make a kingdom. I'm going to make a, a, a royal dynasty. And it's not going to just last for a couple of generations. It will last forever. Do you know who the only person who can make forever promises is? God. So here's the, the truth I want you to hear today. Our eternal God makes eternal promises. Our eternal God makes eternal promises. In our very best, we can make promises like we do in marriage that, it, that are for as long as we both shall live. That is a good and holy and righteous promise to make. And in our vows, we recognize that our vows are only so good as we are alive. We, we have a, an ending point where we can no longer guarantee that we can keep a promise because our life ends. God is not like that. God is eternal. God has never had a beginning. He will never have an end. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He always has been and always will be. He is everlasting. He is eternal. And because of that, He can make promises about things that are permanent, things that are forever. That is the rock of all rocks. Everything else in this world, no matter how committed we may be, no matter how strong and, and passionate and, and, and meaningful, and we still have an end. We still have an end. We cannot make a permanent forever promise. But our eternal God can, and He does, make eternal promises. God reiterates how, how important that the, the forever peace was of this promise because he says it again twice in verse 16, your memory verse for this month. And your house, God speaking to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And in case he missed it, the two times he said it, he's going to say it one more time. Your throne shall be established forever. Repetition is one of my favorite things in the Bible because I'm slow. It helps me when things are repeated so I don't miss the main point. It's forever. It's permanent. It's not going away. God is the author of time, so He is not bound by it. God can see the end before the beginning. So God is not going to get down the road some point in human history and go, Oh, I forgot about that, or I didn't see that coming, and now His promises are null and void. You and I can make promises with the best of intentions, but we are limited, and things happen. And despite us never changing our intentions, sometimes things don't come about the way we want them to. That doesn't happen to God. That doesn't happen to God. God never gets to a moment where He says, I would have kept my promise except for this happened. God always can make eternal promises. This is unique to God. God alone can do this. How good of news it is that God is not bound by some time, by some ticking hand on a clock, by some calendar that keeps turning over month after month and year after year. We are always pleading for more time, running out of time. I always have some checklist on my phone that's got multiple things undone. God does it. God is right on time, every time, without fail. God can make eternal promises because He is God. He's timeless. He's not running out. He's not short. Time is not scarce for God. God is eternal. Change in our world is brought out when we, when we run out of time and things feel wobbly and uneasy and we get anxious and nervous when we, we don't have enough time to do something. God's not like that. He made a promise, and He can make a promise forever because He is eternal.
It's worth a moment to, 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 to hear this promise and, and skip ahead a couple of generations to see how this promise unfolds so we can see how it applies to us. Verse 12, God promised one of David's descendants would sit on his throne. And sure enough, that happens. David, David reigns for 40 years and his son Solomon becomes king next. Maybe that seems obvious, but as by the previous generation Saul, his son didn't become king. So that wasn't obvious. It wasn't a guaranteed thing. So God kept his promise. Solomon became king. Verse 13, God promises that that son will build him a house. Sure enough, God does that through Solomon. Solomon goes to great lengths to build an incredible temple in his generation. Verse 14, God said that he will be like a father to David's son so that when his son sins, David's son sins, God will discipline him as a father. He's going to treat him like his own son. He's going to love him and care for him and discipline him when he needs it. Sure enough, Solomon needs a lot of discipline. Solomon has some pretty crazy ideas about marriage and God has to step in. And because of God's commitment to David, God doesn't actually bring this about until Solomon's son, Rehoboam, but the kingdom divides. Ten of the 12 tribes go to the northern kingdom and David's, David's lineage, the true lineage, Israel, southern kingdom only has two tribes, but God works discipline. And God continues that pattern for 400 years. The, the Davidic line, you can trace from David all the way through generation after generation that God continued to put a king on the throne that was a descendant of David. And all of them basically needed some discipline along the way in big and small ways. And God continued to work that. Well, we read this incredible promise in verse 15 that, that captures what, what God's intention is. He said, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. This is, this is the cherry on top. Not just will there always be a king on the throne from your line, David, but I'm going to love him. I, I, I don't know a whole lot of Hebrew words. So I keep giving you this one because it's the best one. Am I allowed to say that? I don't know. It's a, it's a really good one. Hesed, steadfast love. This is God's covenant faithfulness. His commitment to keep a promise. He said, I, will give, I have given you, David, my hesed, my steadfast love, my unconditional, no matter what, never giving up, never going to break it kind of love. And I'm going to keep giving that kind of love to your son and to the son after him and the son after him. I'm never going to take it from him. Saul came into God's grace and left. Not going to happen with your line, David. That's an amazing promise. And yet that promise gets put to the test. Keep reading through your Old Testament and there is a questionable period of time. David's line, the kings, continue to sin greater and greater. And so God's discipline grows more and more severe. And about 400 years after God gives this promise to David, in the year 587 B.C., so 587 years before Christ, God's, God sent a foreign, pagan, not righteous nation of Babylon to come and wipe out the southern kingdom of Israel, destroy Jerusalem, tear down that temple that Solomon built, and bring the king, who at the time of David's line, out of Jerusalem and into exile to Babylon. And the whole question of that period of time was, is God still keeping his promises? I asked Caitlin to read for you the beginning of Psalm 89. And if you read through the psalm, after you read Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 7, you recognize this whole psalm is built out of this chapter in 2 Samuel as the psalmist praises God all these things that God has promised back to David. And it starts out in a very positive way. We read verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love. There's that word, hesed, steadfast love of the Lord forever. Verse 3, you have said, I have made a covenant 
with my chosen one, I have sworn to David my servant. So he, in 2 Samuel 7, we don't see the word covenant, but this is over and over again when they refer to this time, this word covenant is used. It's so important part of understanding the Bible. This covenant made to David, a Davidic covenant. And so uh, Psalm 89 continues to quote 2 Samuel 7, over and over, 2 Samuel 7. In verse 33, he quotes what we just read. He says, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be a false to my, faith, to my faithfulness. Right? So he's quoting those things to him. But then the psalmist says, but I got a question for you, God. Verse 38, now, but now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have, not, you have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Verse 46, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Verse 49, where is your steadfast love of old? Which, you, which by your faithfulness you swore to David. So the psalmist said, wait, wait, wait. You said forever. You said permanent. You said steadfast love. And yet here we are in Babylon, a long way from that throne and that temple that doesn't even exist anymore. What was with that promise? Are you really keeping your promises, God? Because it sure doesn't look like it. Anybody ever said that before? Maybe not quite those words, but you're thinking it. Like all these promises, they point to the character of God. They don't always fit in our timeline the way we want them to. One of the ways we know that this is, this is such an important chapter of the Bible is how many times it gets quoted throughout the rest of the Bible. I would argue 2 Samuel 7, now this one's pretty clear, that 2 Samuel 7 is the most important chapter of the Samuels. I would argue it's one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. And the reason is this gets quoted and is such an important part of the redemptive history of God's plan. If you back up, so, so if we're thinking about those people in Psalm 89, they're in Babylon, they're crying out, Why, where, are you not keeping your promises? If we could go talk to them, which they figured out in the end, you know, but if we could go talk to them and we come back to 2 Samuel 7 and say, whoa, 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 reread that chapter and see if you pick up on anything that's happened before this moment. I, I would compare 2 Samuel 7 it is like taking all these streams, these little tributaries from different points in the Old Testament before this, and they all come together in this rushing, raging river of 2 Samuel 7. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, all these things come together in 2 Samuel 7. And I want you to see that. I won't spend too much time on this, but I, I want you to see that so that you could be able to explain to those people in exile, hold on, hold on. So I want you to see this. Uh, for example, verse 14 God promised to be a father to David's sons, and they would be his sons. And that reminds us of how God spoke of Adam being created in his image as one he would walk with and have a relationship with like a father to a son. In Exodus chapter 4, God called the whole nation of Israel his firstborn son. And now here is a representative one, David and his sons, that would be like him, like, would be a son, would be a, uh, his firstborn son. God promised Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 that he would make him a great name, which is the same promise God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7, 9. I will make for you a great name. The key leaders of Israel's time in the wilderness coming to the promised land, Moses and Joshua, both of them God called his servant. So he says here in verse 8, Nathan tells, uh, he tells Nathan to, tell, to, to go and speak to his servant David. 
God promised Moses and Joshua that there would be a day he planted Israel, Exodus 15, in the promised land. And they would have peace from their enemies. So it is here in verse 10 in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, God said to David, I will appoint a place for the people of Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. I point all these out because when we hear the language of, of 2 Samuel 7, we have to look backwards, read backwards in our Bibles and say, whoa, 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 God must be doing something big. Because he's made these promises to Moses, he's made these promises to Joshua, he's made these promises to Abraham, and they seem to be coming together here in David. So if it's this big of a deal, exiled Israelites, God's probably not done. God's probably not done. If all this was leading up to the Davidic covenant, there's probably something pretty amazing coming afterwards. The whole idea of eternal promises is that they don't expire. They don't run out. God doesn't get sidetracked. So in Psalm 89, when they're questioning whether God is, is going to be faithful, they're wondering, are these covenant promises really eternal? God's answer is yes. Of course they are eternal. And so we say yes to our eternal God makes eternal promises and our eternal God keeps eternal promises. The God who is eternal, everlasting, makes this promise and he's not distracted or caught off guard. He has a plan. He knows the future. He knows what's going to come. And so he knows he can keep his promises. And one helpful, to see, helpful way to see that, how he does this, uh, theologians use the term, I'm trying to get bogged down here, but telescoping prophecies. God, God makes a promise to Solomon and the next generation, but he's also promising something about far off in the future. And we start to get a hint of that even while they're in exile. In Jeremiah, during this time of exile, Jeremiah 33, 17, it says, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. See, there we are. We're quoting 2 Samuel 7 and Jeremiah. And here's, what, here's how committed God is to his promise. They're wondering, is God going to keep that promise? Jeremiah 33, 20. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that night will not come, uh, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time. So if you can stop the day and the night, he says, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. Hey, you want to stop, the, you want to stop the, the promises to David? Just stop the sun from coming up tomorrow. That's how committed God was to his promises. And we get a clue, now jumping forward, when you get to the very first page of your New Testament. You know how the New Testament starts? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. There he is. There's the son we've been waiting on. There's the appointed one. The one who would reign not just for 40 great years, not just for 33 years living on this earth, but the one who would reign forever and ever and ever. Our God makes eternal promises and our God keeps eternal promises. Revelation 17 and 19 call Jesus the King of Kings. He sits on a throne that is above all other thrones. He is reigning over all things because he defeated Satan, sin, the death, the grave, and he ascended back to the Father and is sitting at the right hand of God. He sits on the throne and he is the one who is king over all and fulfills all the promises given to David. Here he is, son of David, son of God, son of man. Jesus' throne is eternal, it's everlasting, it's unending, 
And so, yes, God keeps his eternal promises. That's the rock beneath your feet when everything else is shaking. No matter what sands of culture are shifting, no matter what times feel shaken, no matter how much time you feel like you're running out of, you can guarantee this. You have an eternal God and his son is sitting on the throne forever. And God keeps his promises forever. Now you may come back to this verse in 2 Samuel 7 and be like, but what about the discipline? What about the discipline? Didn't he say he would discipline his son for his iniquities? And Jesus never sinned, right? So how could this really be about Jesus? Because the whole point is that he was a sinless savior. Jesus was disciplined, but instead of being disciplined for his sins, he was disciplined for yours and mine. He was the only righteous one who could come before our eternal judge and be considered holy and righteous. And he said, I'll take the discipline that was earned by the other children and I'll take it in their place. That's how he could keep his promises. God gives us a rock beneath our feet that is permanent. It is everlasting. It will not change. It will not end. And we can count on him. I'm not going to spend a long time on the last little part here, but I just want to give you that because I know I put it in your outline. And some of you would have a nervous breakdown if I skip my last two points. <laughs> Resist the urge in this moment to say, okay, God did all that for me. Now I'm going to do something for him. Because that's exactly where we started with David. Do you know how David responds to this? He doesn't say, okay, okay, I know you did all those great things for me. And now you've promised to do even more great things. So now I'll go do more great things for you. You know what David does? He receives it. And he praises God. Praise God that he keeps his eternal promises. Praise God that he keeps his eternal promises. The, the song we sang a second ago was, uh, the line was, stirred by grace. Grace stirs us not to do something, to accomplish something, but just to praise him. Praise him for who he is. I read another thing from uh, Dale Davis. He said, have you ever been sitting second in line in a red light? It turns green. And the person in front of you doesn't move. Ain't that just drive you crazy? What a shame it is for the car in front of you not to be moved by a green light. How much more of a shame it is when we are not moved by grace to worship, to praise, to be thankful before God. Praise God. He keeps his eternal promises. David just says, who am I, Lord? What is my house that you have brought me this far? Yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord, and you have spoken to your servant's house for a great while to come. Praise God that you have done this. You've continued to give me grace upon grace. Thank you, God. And then he asks for something, and that's a great pattern of prayer, to praise first and then ask. Prayer, to praise and then petition. But do you hear what he asks for? Verse 25, And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. You know what David asked for? David asked that he would keep his promises. Why do you ask an eternal God to do the things he's already said he's going to do? Do you know why? Because he's aligning his own heart with God's heart. He says, what you want, God, I want. You do it. I'm for it. I'm all in. He's giving a thumbs up. God doesn't need the thumbs up. God doesn't need the green light. But he's saying, I'm in. I want to be a part of this. I, I want you to do what you've said you're going to do. I'm in. I'm on the team. So praise God he keeps his eternal promises and plead with God 
to keep His eternal promises. And now, O Lord, you are, verse 28 and 29, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so you may continue forever before him. He is praising God for his incredible gift, his incredible grace, and he's asking God to fulfill what he's been doing. The phrase that I love in this is that he says, I have found the courage to pray. He's responding to God's incredible blessing by coming to him in prayer. He says, do the things you've called to do. Not my will, but your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One last note from this chapter you got to see. Verse 18, the first thing that happens when David hears this promise, it says, King David went in and sat before the Lord. Now, if you know your Bibles and you know what happens in the temple, people don't sit. You don't sit before, before God. Hebrews 10 actually tells us, Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, every priest stands daily at his services, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which he can never take away. The priest, his job is to stand before God in honor of God, to stand there and make sacrifice upon sacrifice. That's what the priest did in the Old Testament. But Hebrews 10 continues, verse 12. So every, verse 11 says, every priest stands daily. Verse 12 says, And when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Sitting down says, it's finished. There's nothing left for me to do. David's posture before God that day was not sacrilegious or irreverent. He came before God and said, you've done it all. There's nothing left for me to do other than just to praise you and ask you to keep doing what you're doing. I praise you, God that you are eternal. You're the rock beneath our feet and you keep doing it. And I'm just going to stand here and keep applauding you. And that's not a bad thing for us to do today. Let's pray. God, let's, God, we are so grateful that you have given us the chance to know you, to experience you, that you filled us with your spirit, that you continue to speak through your word day by day to us. God, we're humbled humbled by your grace. God, we pray that that same grace would stir us. God, we, there's nothing left for us to do. We don't have to accomplish our salvation. Whatever we have to do is just a, an overflow of our thanksgiving, to share what we have with others, to be generous as ones who have received everything. But God, today we pray that we'd be able to sit in your presence. We'd be able to rejoice. We'd be able to see that it is finished, it is accomplished, it is done. God, thank you for saving us and for giving us an eternal promise that you always keep because your son sits on your throne and you're in charge and you continue to be faithful to us. Lord, bless us today. Bless this group that's here. God, may our song of, of praise be sung back in a way that's just overflowing, not because we have something to offer you, but because we recognize what you've done for us. May we exalt you today in song. May we exalt you as we leave this place. May we worship you in spirit and truth. In Christ's name I pray, amen.